Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group uh, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Ryan. Hey. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation. Uh, So please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or that can or will distract others. Um, Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away. And ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Uh, So if everybody's ready, we're going to start the meditation. late prayer. Um, If you don't know it, just follow along. Um, God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. There's a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. 
We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. And I've asked Juliet to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. Uh, we read this because the main purpose of, this tw of the 12 steps is to have one. Uh, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Juliet, alcoholic. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our, our first printing gave, us many re, gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of a sudden and, spectac and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rap rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound, a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought by, about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they pre presently identif identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that an alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We found that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is a contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer, Alcoholics Anonymous, Anonymous, pages 567 to 568. Thanks, Julia. Uh, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. Uh, this is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane or meeting mode or just turn them off. Um, and tonight we have a guest speaker. Uh, so... Um, I thought that it was supposed to be Doc tonight, and Mike Chase told me who was speaking tonight, and I was a little bummed out at first, but then I wasn't. So I'm really looking forward to hear what Peter has to say. So let's welcome Peter. I think there was a compliment in there somewhere, right? I was ready to get Paulie after you in a minute. But, uh, my name is Peter, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I'm really grateful to be up here. It's my favorite meeting of the week. And um, uh, great speakers come in here to speak. 
Uh, we're usually downstairs, and it looks like an AA conference. The trusted servants here get here probably one in the afternoon to set this place up. It's ridiculous. And uh, there's just an atmosphere in this Thursday night meeting. They do a great job on Monday, but I'm with my sponsor on Monday. But uh, I love getting down here, um, walking into well, this room tonight and downstairs. Uh, usually on a Thursday, there's, there's a good vibe uh, in this place. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, all the trusted servants and their commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. Regardless of what's going on out there, we're here tonight, and that's a great thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel blessed to uh, fill in for, for Doc tonight. He's doing a very nice job. Uh, if you guys have been down here to, to hear him, so uh, thank you for the invitation. And uh, Mike's under the weather, so we keep him in his prayer, uh, our prayers, and uh, hopefully we'll see him soon. June 23rd, 1988 was when God separated me from alcohol. And I'm very, very so grateful to this God, uh, not only for this gift of sobriety and Alcoholics Anonymous, but what he continues to do uh, to me and for me, even though I don't like a lot of it and the pruning of the tree and these huge spectacular upheavals that I experience in sobriety, the removal of many things only to, to find out what was there all the time, uh, the removal of uh, certain parts of me that I feel like I'm falling apart and really what's happening, the parts I don't need are falling. And uh, what's left is what God created to be. Um, There's something I read was, God, how long do I have to wait? And his answer is until you get back to what I created you to be in the first place. And what has happened to many of us, I'm one of them, is, you know, even though we're in Alcoholics Anonymous and seeking a spiritual path, as I know I am, uh, we still accumulate ideas. We still accumulate uh, 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 attitudes and emotions. And uh, I, I get on a path which I think is the right path to walk. It seems, it seems right. It seems fulfilling. And I get attached to that path. And it's just the opposite path that God wants me to go on. And what gets in the way uh, very often, it's happened to me many times, is I'm so afraid of what God's going to bring me to that I hold on to what I know. And I push right up against God's will. And here comes fear. And here comes skepticism. Here comes doubt. And here comes the voices in the head trying to pull me away from God's vision for me. We have a chapter called A Vision for You. My sponsor told me, look at it as a vision for Peter Marinelli. Because every God has a vision for every one of us. You know, And um, so I'm very grateful for the gift of surprise. I'm, I'm grateful to this God. Um, the past, I would say, six months, uh, I have been praying harder uh, than ever and more time in meditation with lots of inventory and seeking counsel with my sponsor, getting to AA. Um, I don't care what kind of virus is out there. I'm going to an AA meeting and um, booze and drugs never stop me from going into the hood at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Suddenly a little flu is going to stop me, you know, um, um, and working with others. Uh, I, I've said this from a million podiums. Uh, our house is like a phone room. Um, she's in one room, I'm in the other, and here come the drunks calling. Uh, they start with me at usually around six in the morning because I'm up at five, and every 45 minutes is another call, and I get ready and go to work and come home and sometimes have phone calls at night. So God has kept me uh, in the middle of this and uh, with skepticism, with doubt as to where he's leading me. 
And um, the past few months, you know, I've been challenged with career challenges and financial challenges, wondering if I'm on the right career path. Maybe I can just go be a plumber somewhere. Why am I doing this to myself? And every time uh, I present God with my fear, he presents another opportunity to stay right where I am. And it has been one, a walk of faith and trust. And faith means I can't see what's around the corner, but I'm going around the corner because that's where I'm being called. And, uh, you know, Mary and I sit with each other and um, we've laughed and we've wept over some situations with career and stuff. But here we are, you know, and I put the key in the dirty way every day, go to work and uh, and come to AA. So um, my prayer life is taking on a new meaning. Uh, and again, I find out how prayer brings debt to every identity that doesn't come from God. And I had to take a look at some of the identities I thought I had to hold on to. Like by my age, I ought to be here. And God's, well, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I have some other things for you to do. And it's really interesting because it's happened many times in my life. In my weakest moments, in my most vulnerable moments, in my times of skepticism and doubt is where I I find God's power and I get strength. I don't mean strength to lift up the podium and hoist it across the room, but inner strength. And that's the thing that's always present. It never, it never goes away, but I can move away from it. That old thing, if you're not feeling close to God, who moved? And I've worked so hard to stay close to this power, but sometimes things get in the way. My concerns become my obsessions and I'm not thinking God. And what God has done for me is pull me right back. You know, just when I thought I was out, he pulls me back in. Um, and somewhere in there, I have head up and shoulders square. I've been upset. I've been sad. I've been depressed. I've been angry. I've been joyful. I've been elated. And so doing all of this, but always st- sticking in the middle of it. And um, I'm very grateful to be where I am. You know, at the end of the day, I'm very grateful to be where I am. And again, I find out that no people, no person, no place, no thing can get me right. And my dependence upon people and places and things is delusional. My dependence must come from God. Our book talks about that and nothing less than that great fact. And as soon as I put my dependence upon people or money or anything out there, I'm in for a rude awakening because I just put a wedge between me and this power. In my greatest weakness, I find God's strength. And something happens, it's really interesting, because when you start to feel okay about life, and you start to, I start to stand in that light, that's darkness to my mind. My mind doesn't get that light. My mind doesn't want to hear about God. My mind wants to keep me in this, this cocoon of dread. And when we step into the light, the mind wants to push right back, that I'm, that I'm being too, too naive about things. Yeah. But scripture talks about being like children, having that kind of faith. In the big book, it talks about the Wright brothers, that childish faith was the mainspring of how they said, maybe we could fly. And everyone said, no, you can't. They said, well, maybe we can. There was something going on with them, this, this childlike faith in something that they were able to do what they did and overcome, surmount these incredible obstacles. I'm sure people presented them with spreadsheets and graphs. You cannot defy gravity. So, well, maybe we can. They had to be alcoholic. I mean, yeah. (laughs) You know, two drinks. We can fly. Let's do it, you know. Um, So, uh, the soul always knows what to do, where to go, and what to say. The trick is to silence the mind. 
Because that always wants a piece. It always wants to stick its nose in there. And it's never good. The only thing my mind is capable of doing is yesterday and tomorrow. That's all it's capable of doing. And yesterday is dread and tomorrow is fear. That's all it does all day long. And every once in a while, I lean in and listen. And I sniff around. And I I get worried about things that are never going to happen. It's like you go to therapy. And therapy, I've been in therapy like for seven years out of my life. It's a wonderful thing. But you know, after therapy's over and you kind of look at the wreckage, many times I was talking about things that never happened or I thought happened. But in a moment, did this really happen? And then you get to the other side and you start to see, okay, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Some things were terrible, but my perceptions of everything had me in this bondage. And what we can do, what I can do in Alcoholics Anonymous, instead of living my life, I can live my story. One is bondage, one is freedom. And I can have my story wrapped around me and I'm not going to get too far from my story because that's my story and this is why I'm heavy. This is why I travel heavy. And if you had my life, you'd be this way too. How long am I going to do that until I start to live my life? A book talks about packing into the stream of life. Yeah. And all these manifestations of self keep showing up and I buy each one and I go down a dark alleyway. So I'm, I'm grateful for my big book, for my sponsor. I'm very grateful for Marion where we get to counsel each other sometimes and share what came to us in prayer. And the men I work with, even though some of them drive me crazy sometimes, Marion had something that was so profound that when they call, they're actually they're helping us. When they call it their inventory, they're calling for us to help us. I said, that's like, that's, that's genius. To survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. What do we do? Go work with someone. I'm a truckload of sponsees. They keep calling. And when it's done, I'm full again. And we get out of our own way. The soul knows where to go, what to say, and what to do. And every once in a while, we buy in. We get hooked or we buy into the thought. And the thoughts feel are powerful because I believe them to be true. And none of the thoughts are true. Anything that comes from this foul system, this mind, this broken instrument, I'm delusional and foolish to listen to it and say, well, that's truthful. Anything right comes from the soul. It feels like it's coming from the mind because I feel like I'm thinking about it, but it's not coming. The awakening of the soul gives me a new mind and there's this intuitiveness like go do this or go call that person or just be still. And the head says, no, 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 don't do that. When our book talks about we pause when agitated or doubtful, the pause is, okay, God, what are we doing? What are we doing? What do you have for me rather than I'm just going to go do this and make a bigger mess? Have you ever noticed the more we manage our life, the more unmanageable it becomes? I use whiskey to manage my life. It never worked out right. I use pills and other substances to feel manageable in my skin, and it only made it unravel more. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and the ABC says, I'm alcoholic and cannot manage my own life. And we get five years together, ten years together, and more. We think we can manage our life. And the more I try to do that, the more unmanageable it comes. And you ask Joe, how you doing? Oh, I'm going through some stuff right now. My question is, how much managing are you doing? And then they walk away from you. (laughs) You So I'm really grateful. uh, My sponsor is Mickey Mussett from Denver, Colorado. Um, I I, I had a sponsor named Mark Houston from uh, from Texas, and uh, he was he was he was just so much to me. 
I mean, I love this guy. He was, he was a, a, a mentor, a coach, a motivator, a sponsor. Uh, and when he passed, I said, what am I going, where do I go from here? And there were some folks who filled in the gap for me, Gary Brown and some others who were wonderful. And then Mick and I would speak every so often. And then one day he says, when are we going to stop just talking and do some work? I said, well, you sponsor me. And he's been just, just, just sent from God. You know. Because of him, I'm back in my church again, which has been absolutely fantastic. And because of him, I got to see some things in me that I never saw before. Some good and some I don't like. But it's the pruning of the tree to bear good fruit because I have a response. God has called us, called me to Alcoholics Anonymous to go work with people and I can't transmit something I haven't gotten. Sometimes I will what I do if I'm not careful. That's untreated alcoholism. You know, I need to be well to treat someone who's sick. I can't be sick and treat someone who's sick. So this, this thing, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's way beyond just getting sober and God gets me sober. It's about living life on his terms and not mine. And we hear in AA, live life on life's terms. Well, hold on a second. I need a double vodka just to pull that off. I, I was very unsuccessful trying to do life on life terms my whole life. I try to live life on life's terms, which meant life's on my terms. And you need to sign up for that. <laughs> Life on God's terms is completely different, but I need to know they're not my terms, they're not my rules. And my life is none of my business. Well, the ego's going to fight. One of, there was a gentleman who, who, who talked about, I grew up thinking a real man takes care of himself. You take care of yourself. You work hard, you make money, you take care of the body, you do, you take care of yourself. And I come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I find out that's a lie. I'm not supposed to take care of myself because when I take care of myself, I take myself to places I shouldn't be. I think about things I shouldn't do and I travel heavy. God's job is to take care of myself and he's given me 31 plus years of sobriety and a life of abundance. He's doing a pretty good job. My job is to seek him. That's my job, to seek God's will. Even when the head says no you know better. And it's going to do that. If you're around here just a while, trust me, if your head hasn't woke up yet, it will. And if you can't get in touch with your feelings, they'll get in touch with you. (laughs) Yeah. And if you say you have no defects, ask your family members, do I have defects? What do we do? It's great. It's easy to be spiritual. I got a new car outside, a pocket full of money, expensive cigar, and the house with the white picket fence sitting on A1A looking over the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, I feel spiritual. Remove all that house spirit. We find out who we really are. My sponsor said that many times. When the chips are down, we find out who we are and who I'm going to go to. So my, my life the past six months has been uh, absolute surrender, total surrender. And paying no attention to negativity and adversity. But paying attention, all my attention to him. And sometimes that's not popular depending on where I am. It's not, it's not met well. I don't care. Because my job is to know God, love God, serve God in this life, to be with him in the next. And I got that in Alcoholics Anonymous. Stay sober first. Then go help another alcoholic chief sobriety. But I need to be sober first. I need to be fit, spiritually fit. Work out in the AA gym. Be ripped in AA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I don't like vulnerability, but God has made me vulnerable and even more transparent. And it doesn't taste good. And you know what I find out? People are so supportive. They get that. We, what we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, we tell stories. When we tell our story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now, yeah? We tell our stories, and it's a shared brokenness. You, get, you go to a meeting, here's some cat reciting the big book. It sounds wonderful, but you walk away saying, well, who is this guy? Did you even have a drink? But when we tell what it was like, we share our brokenness, and we identify, we connect. I felt like that. I thought like that. I drank like that. I get that. Even current stuff. Now I'm listening, and then we talk about the way out and getting to stand in this light. Well, now I want what you have to offer. You're not a glossy, shiny talk, but shared brokenness. And that shared humility. Humility comes through, through pain. That's forged out on an anvil. Of myself, I am nothing. The Father do it the works. I can't keep me sober. I can't get out of my own way. I don't have the power. Where do we go? To the power. There's humility. And we share in that without even knowing it. AA is a shared humility because we get it. We get brokenness. And then we get to share about the, the, what happens to us. It's like when we hit a bottom, we talk about our bottoms. You need to hit a bottom. It's a requirement, basically. And we can sit in the bottom 30 years later and not realize that the bottom, is it a blessing or a, or a curse? Is it a punishment? It's actually a blessing because we fall up. Once we hit the bottom, what do we do? Can you sponsor me? I can't take it anymore. And he walks me through the steps and I fall up. It's a wonderful thing. doesn't feel wonderful. And we can bottom out in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a falling up. God only let me fall so far. And then he speaks through the brick walls that are surrounding me. There's humility. Yeah. June 23rd, 1988, God separating from alcohol. I said this from a million podiums. I didn't see God coming on June 23rd, 1988. I was, I, if anything, I had venom for God, but I didn't see him coming to rescue me and take me from this scrap heap to a level of life better than the best I've known. I didn't see that happening. It was doom, gloom, and dread on June 23rd, 1988. I was living in the back of an abandoned building in lower Manhattan, Alphabet City. I was homeless for a while. I had filthy clothes on, uh, uh, boots with holes in them. I hadn't bathed. I hadn't had a square meal in I don't know how long. I hadn't been hydrated for, I was 130 pounds and dying of alcoholism. Running around with hepatitis C, I'm urinating blood. I, my ribs are coming out of my rib cage. I had the junkie look, you know, the black eyes, the drawing, you think you look okay. <laughs> you think they'll know? You think they'll notice? Like when, I love, I did it too. When youngins come in, they got one week and they get all dolled up and like, oh, you're new. Yeah. <laughs> I walked in taking new. They said, you're new? I said, how do they know? You run to wait and dehydrate. You got eyes, black eyes, you know. And I can't see God coming today. What God has allowed me to do, though, although I can't see him coming, but I can experience his presence. I keep, come on, God, and then suddenly he shows up. What God has allowed me to do to an awakened spirit is, and some of you will identify this, you can hear the defects coming. 
So there's a time when we're sound asleep, we can't, they're all over us. And someone says, hey, you got to work on this. You can hear them coming. You could, you could hear self-reliance moving its way in. And if it, it starts to work, it's repulsive. I got to get away from this. And I go back to God. That's the great thing about being awakened. It doesn't mean perfect. No one's ever going to be perfect. In my humble opinion, one man walked this earth perfect 2,000 years ago. After that, it's been a mess. But God in awakens, gives us an awakened spirit. You can hear that. What, why am I thinking like this? Why am I looking to... And there's a, there's a, there's a pause that happens for us. It's hap- there's something that's a stop, not of my power, but it gets downloaded. It's the awakened spirit. And when I can tap into that, albeit I may not be popular, but I'm walking on the narrow path that I'm safe and protected, regardless of what's going on around me, in AA and outside of AA. And I'm so far from perfect. And let me say in the front, I'm not a model nor am I an example of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the group was kind enough to say, come share, and that's what I'm doing. If this doesn't work for you, there's a million other speakers. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in this hallway, yeah? And uh, I just want to die. When our book talks about 100% hopeless apart from divine help, it talks about that in chapter 3. 100% hopeless apart from... I had to be convinced I was 100% hopeless apart from divine help. What a powerful, for me, graphic statement. No sugarcoating. And I thought about that. I get these things in the big book and they they resonate deep in the soul and I I sit with them and I take them into meditation. God, why'd you download this? What does this mean? And I I got this thing one day, what is hopeless? When I was on the Bowery living in an abandoned building, I still had hope that the next bottle of whiskey was going to take me there. If I could hustle up money, it'll take me there. There was hope even in the humiliation, degradation. And if I kill myself, because which I tried one time, if I take my life, there's hope there because I'm out. As crazy as that sounds, I'm out of this pain, still hope. Hopeless is when I realized in the back of this hallway, I can't kill myself, I can't get sober, I can't get drunk anymore. I keep drinking, I'm not getting drunk. I'm, this is it, I am never getting out of this. I'm stuck in this thing. And that was the emotional bottom reel. I, I drink, I drink, but I don't get to that place. I can't stop drinking. I've tried treatment. I tried AA. I tried my religious community. I tried killing. My, I'm still here. I'm stuck in this. Where do we go? We fall up. Father, please take me from this scrap heap. I'll do anything. And that's the mustard seed of willingness that will move a mountain. I just need to bring a shovel. And I, I have found, I've heard millions of stories that there's, there's this thing that has to happen to, to happen to me and many of us. I have to be in a place of desperation. And in that moment, desperation screams louder than the ego in that little moment. And we fall up. God, please. And that can happen in sobriety when we bottom out in sobriety. Because some of us will bottom out. Not that external conditions get weird. Because out there it's, you know, the external world is, is fickle. You're making money, you're not making money. You're in a relationship, not in a relationship. Things happen. But the bottoming out in here, I flatlined again. And we fall up when desperation screams out in the ego. And in that place, that's when we say, hey, can you help me? Whatever you tell me to do, I'll follow you. Yeah. There's been many times over the years my sponsors have given me direction. I'm saying, this, this has nothing to do with my problem. In fact, this is really radical and extreme. 
But the soul says, listen and follow directions and don't listen to the head that wants to make up its own script. My sponsor told me when we first started working together, you need to get a new author for your life because the author you have keeps bringing you to dark alleys. And that's going to be God who's going to write a new chapter. God will take, has taken me to places I can never volunteer to go to or even want to volunteer to go to. That's what God does. And you say, what, why am I going? Why are we going down this walk? They're all over there seem to be having fun. Why are you taking me this way? Am I going to trust him or not? And every time I got to the other side, I says, thank you for taking me that way. I'm lighter. I'm of more service and I can feel your presence more, which is what I signed up for at the beginning. I was void of God. So in this moment, in in, in 1988, June 23rd, more important day than my own birthday, to be honest with you, the day God got me sober, when he separated me from alcohol and the other stuff, the pills and the life, I didn't see that coming. But I had a moment where doubt and skepticism was erased. For a brief moment, he gave me wholeness of mind, and it came through desperation, because I remember thinking, I need to hustle up money. And I didn't have the courage to go out there. I became afraid. I can't go out there. I thought, what will people will, I, the realization that people see me hustling on the street, this is disgusting, panhandling and doing like that. But I need to get money to get a drink, and I can't do it. But if I don't get a drink, I'm going to die. If I get a drink, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? I became afraid that one more drink, I'm going to keel over and die. I was at that close to the edge. I don't know if I would have died, but that's how it felt. And I didn't want that. But if I don't get it, I'm going to roll over and die. There's only one place to go. If you're out there, please take me from this. I don't want to die. Those were my words. That didn't come from me. A total surrender. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I was not thinking about AA or another treatment center. I knew treatment centers were nonsense. Sit in another group and talk about my feelings how are you feeling today? Rage. (laughs) And I hate you. Medicate me now. Uh, I used to love in treatment when they medicate, they yell out medication and we'd all like the walking dead run right to the counter. Suddenly had this energy. Then when you're off medication, they say group time. I'm not going to group. Uh Group after group after group after group after group. And I'm thinking, I need to get drunk. I need to get really drunk. One more group. I'm getting, you know, I want to OD. I want out. (laughs) I used to hate the counselors because at like four o'clock, they talk about, you know, what are you doing tonight? And we're going to go play tennis, you know, and I'm over there detoxing and I came and stand up and I had nothing but hate, which is what alcoholism loves to do. Keep me in hate. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. And um, to a series of circumstances, thank you, God, I was placed in my seventh treatment center. Now, I got to tell you, it wasn't like I got into treatment. I'm so grateful to be here. When's group? Um, I, I, I was really busted up. I was pretty numb. My body hurt. My body was, if I live to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked in. My body hurt. It wasn't working right either. A lot of stuff going on. They're taking me down to the, to the medical, um, the, the, where the medical folks are and doing these CAT scan things. Why am I bleeding? Uh, what's going on? You got to get the hep C fixed. You're, you're under, you're, uh, 
undernourished and they were, had concerns for me. I'm so grateful the doctors on call didn't medicate me. Nowadays they medicate you in five minutes in treatment. You know, you're feeling bad, take a pill. As an alcoholic, I don't want to feel anything. Watch TV, there's a million, you're feeling too up, take a pill. You're feeling too down, take a pill. You sneeze, we got a pill. Just take a pill. I'm grateful they didn't do that. They let me do, when I couldn't sleep, they said, you won't die from a lack of sleep. You'll sleep. Your body will say we're sleeping. I used to walk the halls, but they didn't medicate me. Thank you, God. But I hated it. And, and the voice in the head, we all got, I call it the other guy, the other lady, you know, depending on your gender, the other person. I don't want to upset the polycler, correct people. That other, that other person. That guy was talking to me all the time like, who are you kidding with this AA recovery stuff? We're going to get loaded. You know it. I know it. Everyone knows it. Your name's Peter Marinelli. This is what you do. You screw up everything. There was another piece to me that says, but maybe I can do this. I became afraid of that voice. I've done dirtbag things, but I knew I wasn't a dirtbag. We do ugly things out there. And we lose sight of who we really be deep down in here. What God created was divine. I mean, all of us were like one or two years old and everyone said we were the cutest baby on the block. We were innocent. How do we get here? I need to go back there in this adult body. The process of recovery is about going home. That's what we're doing. We're going home to purity, honesty, and selfishness and love. To what degree? That's up to God. But that's the journey home, not away I got so far from that. And it wasn't even just drugs and alcohol. That's a symptom of a much greater problem, this internal thing. And I can be in AA 30 years and still have that thing. And the ego shows up and says, don't, you know, I push you away if you start confronting me. It's none of your business. And it is because he's an alcoholic and he sees something in me I can't. My friend Artie always says, you can't see your own ears. And my illness, I can't see it. Through a series of circumstances, I wind up in my seven treatment center. I almost walked out because I couldn't take it. And they sat me down and said, you need to get out of New York. You need to get out of the Northeast. It's too familiar. And they said, we're going to send you to Minnesota. And I said, well, let's not get radical here. I have a desire to stop drinking, you know. Um, This is when the soul starts to talk. You know when you hear something, you say, I don't really think so, but something here says, I know they're right. I knew they were right. Because the soul was animated to get out of here, New York, and go someplace where I can start fresh, if you will, under the guidance of AAs. And next thing I know, I'm on a plane uh, uh, to Minnesota and I did more treatment out there. And they did, um, they used to have halfway, three quarter and sober house. And a year went by and something happened. And I couldn't tell you today, but something happened where I started to see differently. I started to hear differently. I started to speak differently. And I wasn't much better, but the soul had life. My first six months in AA, I was on all sorts of sprees. But the soul kept taking me back to you and listening to the men, mostly the men in AA, who seemed to be very much unlike what I grew up with. First of all, they were men from the Midwest. They talked funny to me. 
they wore, they wore their wedding ring if they were married. And I was growing up, real men don't wear your wedding ring. It's a sign of weakness. And they would cry from the podium. Real men don't cry. That's how it was brought up. And it was attractive to me that they can be so strong and yet so vulnerable and so sure about God. And that was the soul that kept taking me back. And about a, almost a year, maybe a little bit more than a year, I was invited back home and I was brought to my first home group and I haven't looked back since. It wasn't like that when I picked up a drink at 14 years old. I had no plans of any of these things happening to me. I didn't even know what was going to happen to me when I drank beer that night. The older guys were drinking beer. I'm fear-based, insecure. I got alcoholism already. Wherever I go, there I am. It's not good enough. I was a really gifted musician. But I couldn't even take, hey, you're really gifted. I had to be greater than like John Bottom. I had to be the greatest drummer ever known to the planet. And maybe I might feel okay about my talent. That's how I do. That's a terrible way to do life. Because I'm not good at a lot of things. My mom uh, took her life, committed suicide uh, in January of 74. So this is like June-ish, about May, June. The weather was nice. The guys are hanging out on a street corner, which was what we did back in the day in Brooklyn. I always liked hanging out with older guys. And they were listening to music, you know. Before disco ruined everything, we had good music going on. <laughs> and... Um, Listen to the Stones and Cream and, you know, things like that. The Aerosmith just hit and they were monsters and it was a, it was a cool time. And um, I drank some beer that night and I drank a little bit more beer and I continued to drink that quart. And somewhere in polishing off that quart of beer, something happened to me that I never experienced before. It was the very first time. And I don't, I'm not giving this lip service because I can remember when my mom threw me a party. I was maybe three. We had the little party hats on, all the kid pinned a tail on a donkey, and all the, this is before like internet was out, and you did these kind of fun games. Yeah, I hid underneath the table. I, I couldn't deal with all these people giving me all this attention. I just I, I got to get out of here. I don't even deserve a party. And my mom would tell me, your friends, they're here, they love you. You know, the parents were there. And, and my mom's making a big deal about her son, me, having a birthday party. I, I got to get out of here. Have it for someone else. I was no different at 14 hanging out on the corner. But when I drank that, that, that beer, I didn't feel like that anymore. I was right in the middle of it. I was part of life at last. That's what they talk about in our big book. I had arrived is what Bill says. All those voices, all that insecurity, all that fear removed. I was John Wayne in five minutes. This was great. I can roughhouse. I can be a gangster. I can be a musician. I can be a jock. I can talk to the girls. I can listen to the music. Got better. They got prettier. I got taller. I love the effect produced by alcohol, yeah? I had no idea. I stepped on a road, paved right to hell. I couldn't see it coming. I can't see God coming. I can't see my alcoholism coming. Even now, I haven't thought about, thank you, God, a drink for many, many years. Trust me, the drink is always thinking about me. It's obsessed with me, not because I'm special. It just needs a host to get in. Mm. 
And so I drank, I got drunk, and I couldn't wait for the following Saturday to get drunk, and I got drunk. That happened quite often, and it rolled into during the week because progression does what progression does. As an alcoholic, the progression's like a crescendo in music. It gets louder, it doesn't decrease. It gets worse over time, never better. That's chronic. By the time I'm 18, I'm full-blown already. My, my ideas, attitudes, and emotions about life are warped. I started to hate my brothers and hate my family. I hated being a Marinelli. They're just, they're, they're wrong. I need to hang out in Manhattan with the rest of the winos and dauphines. They were my people. I felt comfortable around that. They didn't care if I shaved, showered, or what. They didn't care if I was employed. You got money? Yeah, good. You can hang out. And I got into these relationships. Bless their hearts. Women, I wouldn't even fly over today. Because I was just a sick. Sick attracts sick. Yeah? Verbally abusive. Just abusive, you know? I was, no, I was no angel either. And I'm thinking God's done this to me. And if my mom didn't die, if my dad was more warm and fuzzy, I wouldn't be in this jam. Regardless of what my parents did, regardless of external conditions, I'm alcoholic. I'll get drunk on Park Avenue. I'll get drunk on a park bench. And I'll bring the same wrath upon me anywhere I go. I made my first treatment center, I made my second, made my third treatment center, I made my fourth, and I got into my fifth treatment center. Now I'm addicted to narcotics, and I got marks all over my body to prove that. I couldn't believe what was happening to me. Get drunk all day, you never touch a needle, you never get into narcotics, and here I am in the middle of that, plus drinking, eating pills, you name it, it's going in, and I'm hooked on a bunch of things. And the trap doors have trap doors. It's a moment of realization when you're in a treatment center and you step out of a shower and you got abscesses on your arms. You got holes in your arms and you got marks all over your leg and you got hepatitis C. And the only thing the head is telling you, we just need a double vodka. Just get a, I can almost romance, the, I can taste the drink sitting in treatment. Just a drink, just a drink. And in my fifth treatment center, I remember going in swearing off the narcotics. It was nasty. The lifestyle and the detox, I'm not going back there. I did a ton of drugs. I'm not an addict, though. But I am alcoholic. I spent nine weeks in that fifth treatment center. And back in the day, that was unheard of. It was 28-day model. You're cured. Go home. Because that's what your insurance pays. It means you're cured. They wouldn't hold you a day longer. Which gave me some contempt and suspicion about the whole process. AA is for fun and for free. God bless it. No one's checking us at the door. And uh, they did something to hold on to me in this fifth treatment center for nine weeks. They knew I'm a dead man if I leave. And whatever they did, they did. And nine weeks later, they tell me, we can't hold you anymore. And I said something along the lines, I know what I need to do, which is my alcoholic mantra to my next drunk. I know what I need to do. I don't know what to do. But I told them I know what I need to do. I was discharged on a Saturday and blind drunk Monday, Monday morning, blind drunk. And I got drunk. Uh, I remember getting down to uh, the liquor store in South Brooklyn. My family moved to a place called Staten Island. I had about this hour drive to South Brooklyn. No one would see me. I got there too early in the morning. The liquor store wasn't open. I remember this. I parked the car and I'm pacing outside the liquor store. My body was, was completely detoxed. Nine weeks in treatment. My body's fine. It's a little weak, but it's no with, withdrawal symptoms at all. Until I crossed the threshold 
of the treatment center on Saturday, and it hit me. Sunday, I'm crawling out of my skin. Monday morning, I'm pacing up and down the sidewalk waiting for this blankety-blank to get here to open up this liquor store. I need a drink. So much so that my body was feeling like it was going through withdrawal. My body wasn't going through withdrawal, but the head was. The head was, you need a drink. We really need, we need a drink. And then I'll go to those AA places, but you got to take the edge off here. And so I drank the liquor. It went down as quick as I can. And by the time I finished the pint of whiskey, you know what? I didn't have any anxiety. The clammy hands went away. Air back in my lungs. I got taller. I got better looking. I felt I was in control, which is what liquor does. I'm in control and I'm actually out of control. But I'm alcoholic, so I had to go back in there and buy a second pint because I'm alcoholic, because my cravings intensified, not satisfied, yeah? One's not going to do it. The second one screams. The third one screams even louder. So I bought a second pint. By the time I polished that off, I'm drunk. When I'm drunk, I like to eat pills. So I go into the projects, and Valium was the hot pill back then. Buy a handful of Valium, eat them like they're M&Ms. My car stayed there for, I don't know, three, four days. I was on a drunk, and I didn't see it coming. Sitting in treatment going, never me, not me. I'm, I'm in this business where I get one after the other sit in front of my desk. I know I'm not going to use, and two days later, can you take me back? Alcoholism is not going to reveal itself to me. It's not, that's not its job. It's going to sneak on me. It's going to ambush me. It's not going to tell me, tomorrow, 10 o'clock, I'm going to wreck your life. Call your sponsor. It's not going to do that. <laughs> I get hijacked. Bill says in his story, the goose hung high. I mean, everything looked good. Bang, drunk. He swore off liquor. Bang, drunk. I'm telling him, I'm good to go. Drunk. And as a book says, thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Started a journey to hell for me, and I didn't see it coming. The trapdoors have trapdoors. I never picked up the first drink drunk. That's alcoholism. I picked up the first drink, sober as can be. And what I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, I can die from alcoholism without ever putting a drink or a mood or mind-altering substance in me. I will die from alcoholism without ever picking up in AA because life is just too overwhelming and I have no muscles, no spiritual muscles. Mm. I don't get don't drink and go to means. If that's your remedy, God bless you. I don't get it. I, I, I don't get that. If I had the power to not drink, why do I have to come here? Stay home, not drink. I'm in control. I'm, I got the power. A real alcoholic, I have no power. I swore it off. I made promises. Uh, back in the day, they talk about pledges. They're promises. I'm not going to lose her, so I'll stay sober. I don't want to lose my family. Stay sober. I'm drunk five minutes later. That's not the plan. I don't want to do this. Do you ever, while you're drinking, going... This is wrong. I, I shouldn't be here. Yeah. On your way to the cop spot, that voice is going, this is not a good plan. This is really bad. You're going to blow it. Give me two. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got thrown in this apartment that my dad had to get me. Mr. Mr. Wonderful over here, Mr. Sharp Guy. Daddy had to get him an apartment. I'm, you know, 26 years old. I lost my job on the docks. My dad furnished this apartment, and I trashed it. Sold everything in it. <clears throat> Brought these unsavory characters in all hours of the night. And by the time I got thrown out of this place, it was, it was a pigsty. It was disgusting. 
It was a mattress that was blood-stained and soiled. No sheets and pillowcases, a nice warm comforter. I just pass out and come to. I wasn't bathing. I wasn't paying the rent. Um, I, used to, um, I found one day in the cupboard <clears throat> Domino sugar cubes and a box of spaghetti. I'm not spending money on food. That's not happening. So I would grab a handful of sugar cubes. This was right before I got thrown out of this place. I reek. There's a shower and a bathroom. There's a little studio. So you walk 10 feet and you're in the shower. You can bathe. Not doing it. The water would hurt. I grab a handful of sugar cubes and a handful of these spaghettis, break them in half, put them in my pocket, and I'd eat hard, uh, hard spaghetti and chew on sugar cubes, and that was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because any money I hustled, unless I could boost some Twinkies in a bodega or something, that was a gourmet meal. That's not for shock value, but that's where my morals were. That's where my taking care of myself leads me to, yeah? Wound up in the hallway. Um, I liked abandoned buildings. For one reason, the cops didn't come in. Unless it was a 911. We didn't have ODs like you do now. OD back then was this, what? What happened? Where did they cop? I want to get that. Um, <clears throat> I used to take my drink, my whiskey, and I used to go to the back of the hallway. And as icky as it was, I knew I wasn't going to get arrested. Occasionally people would, you know, shuffle in and out of there. It wasn't very pretty. But I saw, tucked myself way in the back of the hallway. I felt safe because I could see who was coming in. And I had these old metal radiators. I would sit behind next to it and kind of shield myself. And, um, and I think about where this thing took me to, this alcoholism. Um, and my life, where it was. Until um, I got to the place of... I'm stuck in this. I'm going to die this way. They're going to find me here. And um, I would drink. And I would go right out. That's what I said. Come to, drink, out. Come to, do it again. Need to get out there, hustle up money. And um, that was my life. Now, Park Avenue, Park Bench, whatever we're going through is not as powerful until we get hit with emotional bottom where, oh my God, this has to stop. I cannot live another minute like this, but how do I stop? Because I can't. It's panic time. It's called desperation. It's called the gift of desperation. It didn't feel like a gift when God reached down and says, out, you're coming with me now. Not home yet. I got a lot of work for you to do, but I got to pull you out of there. It's like, what are you doing? When our roots get ripped out of the soil, it's like, what is he doing? but it's necessary. I was petrified. I was taken to a meeting in Minnesota called the Three Legacies Meeting. I've, I've always plugged this meeting because it really did for me at a soulful level what I never experienced before. It was a Friday night meeting, 300 people at least. Everyone was dressed, the men, suit and tie, most of them. The greeters were, were just, just done to the nines. The women were dressed proper. The speakers were dressed proper, like they were going to church. And I'm used to a different kind of walk. And even though it intimidated me, I liked it. How do you, how do you look that clean cut? How do you have a job? I don't know how to do this. <laughs> how do you maintain a relationship? I mean, how, how is this possible? You're an alcoholic. And they would tell their stories. 
and the old timers in there, I was pinned up against the back of the would invite me up to the front. I said, decline because I, I can't sit in the first few rows. Look at me. That's for special people. I mean, my self-worth was at a gutter level. And uh, my God knew that. <clears throat> and he put me back together because I was sincere. I was willing to do anything. I'm willing to be changed into something I didn't even know he's going to change me into, but I can't do this anymore. And, and that guy uh, that, who's not worth it and can get trashed on by people, he's still got a pulse. He doesn't show up as often as he used to. But it's still there. I don't deserve this. I'm not worth it. Walk all over me. And when that happens, that, that, that sound of that is repulsive because that's being selfish to God. God's got great things for all of us. But that's where I was in 1988-89. And I couldn't look anyone in the eye back then. How could I? Because I knew what you were looking at. I didn't know you were looking at the soul, another drunk who sick, was sick the way you are, like I do now when I see a youngin coming in and they're just, they're just the one that they want to die. I can reach in and pull them out because I know where you're at. No shame, but that's what I was feeling. And um, when I came home, I found a sponsor, Tony N., who took me from the cover of his big book and my life changed. And I got to work with Mark H., and Joe H. and Don P. and Gary B. And now Mickey M. And my family that was shattered by alcohols. I mean, it's not butterflies and rainbows when you walk into a family reunion, but we walk. Hmm? I was talking to my brother yesterday. I got to get out of here because the time's up. And uh, my middle brother's Parkinson's. He's always been successful. He was the guy who went to college, got the job, got the wife, got the house, the whole thing. And he's had his challenges the past couple of years. And uh, I, I, I feel safe with both my younger brothers. I trust them with my life. And I was sharing the past couple of weeks about my vulner being vulnerable with them. And my brother said to me, he says, bro, remember when you told me when I was going through this how to do this? And remember when you shared with me how you uplifted me that, which meant they were listening and he was telling me without telling me how I helped him change his life. My middle brother wouldn't allow me in his house for like two years. But Alcoholics Anonymous is contagious because God's contagious. So we walk differently today. Me and my brother, we, we, we share wide open, wide open with each other. And what great freedom. The way I can be wide open with you guys, what tremendous freedom. And it's all my God. Because he will speak without me saying a word. Without you saying a word, the walk is the sermon. And then when we speak, it has depth and weight. Because we're coming from this place deep down in here, the soul. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I always want to be teachable and pass this message on with the same love and gratitude that God gives it to me with every single day. That's all I got. Peace. Uh, let's thank Peter again.
And now we're going to bring up Megan for the secretary's report. Um, hi, my name is, is uh, Megan, and I am uh, your recovered alcohol, alcoholic secretary. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. I've asked, asked Oscar to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as a recovered rather than recovering, and what exactly it means to be a recovered alcoholic. Hello, everybody. My name is Oscar, and I am a recovery alcoholic and also an addict. So I okay, recovered. We are no cure of alcoholics. Recovery, but no cure that present a conflict to some alcoholic. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsible. No, we are no cure. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for all our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. That main problem of alcoholic centers is its mind rather than is the body. We are, no, we are now saying where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. A 1940-style big book sponsorship from forward to second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and, and uh, really tried, 50% got sober at once and uh, remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Could I please have a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? And anyone needing a sponsor, please raise your hand. Okay, let's get with these folks after the meeting and get them back to God. Um, please join us Monday nights for the Big Book Study Meeting, where the Big Book comes alive. Fellowship is at 6.30. Big Book Study starts at 7.15. We have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, the Little Red Book, and Big Book Dictionaries for sale. We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. And we also ask if people could smoke 75% um, 75 <laughs> feet away from the front door. <laughs> Thank you. See you all next week. Um, all right. Uh, we have tonight's session and all the past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Um, and I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. Uh, this upcoming Monday we'll be starting... Um, more about alcoholism, so that's uh, a good time to come check us out. Check it out. Um, and then to those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, you can just line up down the center aisle, and we're going to go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Who can bring us from shame to grace?
I'll see you all Monday or next Thursday. Godspeed. Thursday bodies aching. I am desperately in need of restoration. Yeah, and I am ready for you to take me higher. Yeah, the only thing that I can do.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. Green now, 
growing vines. They twist and turn each way. Flowers blooming all the time outside my door. Never before. I had to change everything to realize that today is the best day of my life. song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Yeah.